Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I, I think that, that in a sense we've kind of missed the whole temple, the significance of the temple as a cosmic representation that then is being incorporated. N.T. Wright does a nice job with that. He pictures, you know, the, the communities that Paul is establishing on a continuum that he calls them temple communities. And I think that's the sense that here is the true temple. Here is, and this true temple, even in Paul's imagining of it, is of cosmic proportion, encompassing all peoples and all of the earth, even before it's an accomplished fact. Wright is the person that, four or five years ago, that I began reading, that began to plant the seeds that the Christianity that I was spent so much time in was really not the Christianity of the Bible. And unfortunately, I feel like most of American Christianity still, I hear it in terms, you know, we talk in terms. We don't see the renewal of all things. I mean, we might use it in, in some wording here and there, but I don't think we really grasp it. I don't think we understand. You know, we might say eternal life begins now, but we don't view ourselves as that new community that as Yoder, you know, a new politic or whatever. The church does not think in those ways. With someone like Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, they are representative, I think, of the ground that has been lost theologically. That Marxism is actually a development out of a Christian understanding, of course, through Hegel. But what he's doing quite ingeniously is that he's exposing ideology. That is, to state it simply, naming the idols. We're surrounded by ideologies, and, and I don't think that we are prepared to name those idols, and so we end up worshiping them. And then Sigmund Freud, of course, is, I think, just developing a Hebrew sensibility that really is Christian ground, and that is that, that we should be able to state, if we really believe that, you know, in the incarnation of God, and that God then has brought us the truth, we should be able to state in some concrete fashion the significance of this truth and how it impacts us as human beings. And so I think, in a sense, that's, that's my project. But I think you could just go on through. We've got economics. We've got uh, psychoanalysis. You know, I think you could just do it with every realm. And the work is, for the most part, not being done because I'm afraid of the kind of failed. I'm never sure where the failure lies. Is it a, a failure of intellect, a failure of the bad theology? Or There are all kinds of theories, you know, a kind of secular hypothesis. Max Weber gives us that. And so I, I don't know the specifically why, but I think that, that the job then, after reading Romans and, and coming to this new sensibility of saying, oh yeah, that salvation is a, a real-world, present-tense circumstance that we can begin to describe in a real-world practical terms. That's what's missing. There is a kind of shallow understanding that creates a, a sort of a very shallow ghetto 
of thought. Uh, and as, as I'm saying this, I know there are, are places and people to which there are exceptions to this. But I think for, for an evangelical Christianity in particular, you know, in this country, in the United States, uh, I think it's probably different in Canada. If you want to really do serious theology, you almost just have to abandon uh, any kind of Protestant institution. If you're going to study philosophy, if you're going to study theology seriously, all of that to, to agree with you, David. And so you get a, you get a character like N.T. Wright. Here is this guy with this rich intellectual heritage. You know, the grand intellect in my lifetime may have been someone like Carl F.H. Henry. But Carl F.H. Henry was just a thorough modernist. I mean, he was a great intellect. He had a breadth of learning, but he was limited very much so by, by, the time and, by his time and place. So I don't know how, except just to keep whittling away at it, I feel like our, our fight is, is that most of us, in, we're in churches that are, have thoroughly have been uh, washed in an American form of Christianity, to, even to the point where I made some disparaging comments uh, about nationalism and, and included Franklin Graham. Boy, I tell you what, that's an uphill battle and and how to do it in a loving way we're so in, indoctrinated in it and um you know for me i feel like it was a deconstruction that took place in my life and as things began to be removed all of a sudden other things started making sense things that i thought were heretical before like women doing something in the church like allowing women to to serve in leadership roles in the church some of my pushback on that was just from the women some of the older ones not the younger ones yeah I think that is a topic that, in my understanding, this is not a side issue. The oppression of one half of the human race by the other should probably be front and center, and I think it is in Paul's theology. Rightly done, you know, that what he's depicting then is an undoing. You know, the work has been done in, in regard to gender relation. If we bear the image in a pluralistic fashion corporately, there's no way of continuing to treat women, and that's just the reality as second-class citizens. It's a grand waste of people, it's oppressive, and the irony that you're describing is that very often it's women themselves who are self-oppressive. I got this a little bit when I taught. It's very often the case that women are, some, at least at our little school, were some of the brighter students you got, but they so often were geared not to develop that capacity because that was the shape of their training to, to be helpmeets for men. Part of this is the, the whole issue, you know, if you got Junior as an apostle, as a leader, whatever that word means, you know, that you could debate, but whatever it means, she was a leader. And I think it's unquestionable that she was a woman that history, I don't know if you read Sharon's little article, that discovery took place. It was funny because we were doing a, a Roman study here in the house, in our little house church, and we came to 16, and I just said, well, you know, Junior is a, a woman apostle, and I think it was the most excited I had seen the women in the group, or several of them said, oh, we're going to name our child, you know, our first child, Junior. The discussion here, Dave, I know what you're asking, and I don't have an answer for you. And that's why I do what I do, and that's why you do what you do. And that is, how do you negotiate this 
in a, in a local church? I think the tide is changing. I sense that the uh, the millennials. I by no means think they're going to have it all right, and they're going to have in twenty or thirty years. They're going to have their own things that they'll have to deal with. But I feel like on some of these things, the tide is changing in the church. I I did my blog this morning on jo- uh, in part on Joshua Harris. Purity. He's wrote the book on purity, and you kind of just have to feel sorry for poor Joshua that he left his wife. He's left the faith. It's like the world, in some way, he's encountered evangelical bubble broke for him, and I think that's what's happening for many millennials end of that period. That the thing is not holding together. It is coming apart. My point. I'm trying. Trying to be optimistic is that in in a sense, it may be a step forward. Christianity, as it's presented in the New Testament, is a displacement of the understanding of God as we usually understand him in evangelical Christianity. In other words, I think the Christ that, or the God that should be done away with, is the one that Christ should have destroyed for us in his teaching and life. The problem is such an enduring problem, and the way I've described it, it it pertains to our own identity. It it pertains to a psychoanalytic identity, partly, I think, why it is such a stubborn thing to displace people's understanding of a kind of punishing father. That's just right out of, you know, that's, that's Paul, but that's Freud, too. Oh, you need that punishing father. You need the, the law. You need that reality in some way, and reality there in quote takes hold. So I, I think there is a shift, and I, I, w- I want to think that it is probably a good shift. If you, if you had to trace a parallel, it would be Europe 100 years ago. But today, Christianity is just, for most people, not a plausible alternative given their their worldview. They've already passed through that. In this country, Christianity, I, religion, I mean, people are, are even people who've rejected evangelicalism and really rejected the church. I don't really think most of them, for the most part, are irreligious. I think they're, they're homeless. Well, something that our congregation, uh, we recently did a pretty in-depth sermon series on women's role in the church and throughout church history and stuff. And I don't know, something that I've come across is that women, not all women, but women in general, tend to be willing to be submissive and to subject themselves. You know, if they feel like they're doing it to follow Jesus, um, they don't have a problem doing that. But then the issue comes whenever trying to explain to them some of these cultural scriptures and what Paul was saying in those times and things like that. It's almost like a reverse, like you're, they feel like they are following Jesus and they are in a good place and they're comfortable with being submissive and subjective to the male leadership and then trying to kind of reverse that mentality in a helpful way. It's just really difficult, especially whenever it's somebody who feels like they are in a humble, submissive role already that they're being called to. It's just a difficult situation, I guess, to try to help women see what equality or unity, I guess, is a better way to phrase it, looks like, and what they can still feel confident in knowing that they're following Jesus, even if they see themselves as unified in an equal way, as opposed to this egalitarian versus complementarian view. But it's just interesting. It's uh, Women are very good at being submissive and subjecting themselves 
um, to authority. So I know it's something that I've been able to learn from is their humility in doing so and being able to add that to my own life and my uh, humility too. But I don't know. It's just uh, there's so many different angles that that conversation is complicated at whenever you try to start to pick away or try to add in some truth to what they've been taught their whole life. It's just a unique situation for each individual woman involved. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The culture and uh, things are such that if one wants to be a misogynist, that the opportunity is certainly there and that evangelicalism is the home for you. To come out of that, you have to nurture somebody. I think that the same thing with Philemon and, and Onesimus. Onesimus has to learn what it might mean not to be a slave. There needs to be a, a nurturing of people's full realization of what it means to be a child of God. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I'm trying to cover up my, I'm trying not to show that I'm laughing. There's got to be a great blog in there somewhere about, you know, if you're a misogynist, then evangelicalism is the home for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's got to be, it's just so perverse, man. There's so much, there's so much about it that I just think is just anti-Christ. My perception, and my, and I, I'm never quite sure, I left, I was gone from this culture for 20 years. My perception is things didn't get better. They got, in fact, uh, exponentially worse, specifically on this issue. And I, I can't quite figure it. It's like there is a retrenchment in people's thinking. And, of course, we were at that little institution. I never met people that were so misogynist, openly misogynist, in, in any form of... I never experienced that before. And mean, mean misogynists. To call it Christianity is a blight on the faith, but one shouldn't go there, should one? But it's almost as if those are, that's the least of their problems. In the Christian churches, I think there has been regression. The women being ordained, that was not uncommon. And maybe part of it is my experience on the mission field. Women are a very strong presence on the mission field because it is such a, a grueling kind of work men tend to flake out much earlier. Women then have been this, played key roles on the mission field. And of course, in my wife's family, her, her own aunt and, and her mother. And I was just totally shocked in some ways, and, and I'm still just incredulous at the, the levels of sickness I think Joshua Harris is a kind of example, and you, you don't want to blame the poor boy himself because he has just absorbed, you know, what, what it is. But what he's come to recognize is that his whole upbringing was one in which he feared women. He feared sexuality. And there is this kind of objectification of women. Evangelicals don't address that. They just, as Jason said in a, in a comment on my blog this morning, said all that happens is you, you continue to objectify women, but, but you have to get a state license and get married in order to do it legally. Uh, and then it's, it's good, acceptable Christianity. And it's just a, the, the people's humanity. I think both male and female are drained out of that kind of relationship. It's not healthy for, for anyone involved. So depending on the situation you're in, in a congregation or personal setting, I mean, how do you approach that? Do you just 
insure a woman or somebody that is qualified and gifted to do something that you're, it's okay to do this and then just kind of like encourage them into it without discussing it with the overseers or is that kind of a passive aggressive way to subvert the authority of eldership and obviously you don't tell a woman just to go and preach on a Sunday morning if that's not the way the church would accept her role but do you just slowly like maybe it's in a bible study leadership role like have her teach a class or something or and just see what type of response comes from the eldership if there is a negative response or somebody has an issue with it like i guess my question is like how do you go about starting the process of opening these doors to women in the church you know not in a passive aggressive or subversive yeah. way David is one of the few people I know that has actually led his congregation into an acceptance of women in leadership. So you've got the answers here, Dave. I'm no pioneer in this, per se. We haven't really gone as far as, as, far as I, I would like to go. So the door has been open. We don't, there's this next month or so, they're going to be nominating some new people for elders and deacons and stuff. What that will mean is is that right now, as a church leadership, they're not even considering women in, in elder roles, but they are considering them in, in deacon roles. Call those titles whatever you want. Here, here at our church, that deacon role gives, gives weight. I mean, I hate to put it in this terms, but it gives, it gives weight to whatever direction we take in the church. So basically, if things came down to a vote, whether you were an elder or deacon, their vote would have equal course. So I think one, prior to last year, uh, women were not allowed in even in deacon roles. We went through leadership and, and I really, I never framed it as elder deacon roles as much as I framed it that women were, had leadership roles in the church as we went through the study. You know, you, you see people like Junia and Phoebe, obviously she has a deaconess or deacon. The word really is, can be used for both men and women. So what we did is, is that we opened up that door that women could be on our leadership team. I don't think it's an issue. We would have no problem with women preaching or, or teaching here uh, at our church. One day we will jump over that hurdle as far as even the role of, of an elder. But right now we're taking victories where we can find them. That's kind of what we've done. And, you know, I feel like what I don't want to do is I don't want to push something either that everybody's happy. You know, let's say there are no women that will serve in these roles. That's fine. But hope, hopefully in time that will take place. We really have women in leadership roles already in the church. They just didn't give them any authority. But, you know, we have women leading some of our ministries. So I've had women come and speak at our church during our message time. That's kind of, you know, where we're at. I know um, that I've been places where that would have never been allowed. I probably would have split the church. So maybe it was good that God brought me where I'm at, you know, at the time where I'm at. Yeah, that's good. I mean, the situation where it's like there are women that the leadership, the elders and deacons would say, sure, it's okay for a woman to lead children's daycare or a middle school Bible study type of a thing. We have women in leadership roles, but once it starts to get into the adult realm, that's whenever the tension enters into the conversation. And we've had a couple of ministries, some great ministries that started up recently with like special needs kids and stuff like that. And these moms 
are going to conferences and they're getting all equipped to get these ministries going at our congregation. And they've done, you know, most of the legwork and everything. But as far as being in a leadership meeting, there has to be a male deacon that's in charge of that ministry, even though he's probably not the one that's qualified to be talking about that ministry in those meetings. It's just the fact that he's a male, that he is now the stamp for that ministry. But the women who have basically built it are not even present during the meetings. So it's just things like that that really I'm hoping will start to see that, you know, small victories and things like that and continue to build on. But it's a case-by-case situation you just have to be patient in. But that's just the frustrating part of it, I guess, for me. If you would just take what you learned in this class and show up next Sunday and say, okay, here's what I've learned. I don't think it's going to work or some of the key parts of the things that we've done. But I think that we've been through a radical redefinition in our understanding of the the work of Christ, and not simply in the, its cosmic importance, but it, in its unconditional importance. There is a sense, I think, that 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 is such that people are often not indoctrinated enough that they perhaps will not even notice (laughs) things like divine satisfaction, penal substitution. They may have heard it their whole life, but they've probably never had somebody just sit down and say, okay, this is the meaning of the death of Christ. And so that may be a good thing that people's ignorance or their lack of indoctrination is such that they, in fact, and in fact, the the cross of Christ is such that to say that one theory or one understanding gets it already, you know, a, a kind of fallacy. But I think that needs to be worked into our understanding. And to my mind, that is the foundation for every other issue, that once we understand, in other words, the, the really the key issue, I think, that is taking place in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that the rest of the book is surrounding, is, well, what does this whole thing mean? What, what does Christianity mean? What is it we're saved from, and what would it mean to be saved, and how would we describe that? One needs to then bring home the idea that we can name the human predicament, and I think if you do it in such a way that it addresses people's problems where they're at, and I think that's the difference, that penal substitution, divine satisfaction have absolutely nothing to do with people's real-world experience of the problem you know, that they're experiencing. I think the gospel actually addresses the human predicament. The whole understanding is very much a kind of practical salvation that that one can begin to to present. I think it, it makes a profound difference in the presentation and teaching wherever you go in Scripture. I'm curious, David, has that proven true in your experience? That your reading of right, your understanding of Romans, is not simply impacting those areas, but impacting other areas. It's actually been kind of fun because the the pieces of the puzzle are are starting to come together. I mean, it wasn't until uh, last year, the more more that I began to hear it and then uh, really begin to understand the Bible kind of in some new ways, what's happened is it's almost kind of right opened up the door. I didn't know how far the door was going to swing open. It totally changed things. What's interesting is is that I don't know at times if as I'm preaching and teaching if people, you know, because I won't 
bring attention necessarily right now, you know, to penal substitution, but I'll talk in terms of what God has done, not necessarily what we had to do, right? It's interesting because I think people nod their head. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, as long as I don't use the terms. Now, if I use the term, you know, and say, I'll tell you what, penal substitution, I think is wrong. That might send up red flags. But if I say that the cross was a victory, it was God that rescued us, people grasp that. And it, I stay away from the terms and, and just simply try to teach what's being said there. Well, that, that was certainly my original experience in Japan is that this is my own understanding was shaped there, that uh, just understanding that I went with just did not in any way coincide or could not be coordinated with where people were at. Oh, do you want to miss hell and go to heaven? Do you want me to tell you about days of creation? Do you? It only took me about 20 years to figure out this thing isn't working, you know. There is a gospel that addresses people in their struggles that there, there is an understanding of God and Christ that is quite oppressive. And one, it to me, is quite understandable that people would reject it and get rid of it. But I think there is also an alternative understanding. Christ as the great physician, the healing that can come in a person's life, the understanding of uh, opening beauty and love, and there's a great gift to be had there that I'm afraid people are just missing out on. And once you see it, it's not really the kind of antagonistic, sort of apologetic, beat them over the head, get them out of hell. It was sort of the culture and Christianity that I was raised in, but I think, again, it has become progressively worse as this kind of contractual notion has been emphasized in evangelicalism. I think that's precisely why you can get a conservative political popular movement in support of a complete idiot, a pussy-grabbing, uh, a loathsome human being who people imagine is God's man. And so you know that there is a kind of emptiness in that faith and that understanding, but I think that for many people, they're seeing that. And, and so the, the reality is this thing doesn't, it really doesn't mean anything. I understand why people would reject that form of Christianity. Uh, and probably should be rejected. And the, the tragedy is that they imagine that they've rejected New Testament Christianity or, or rejected the teaching of Jesus. Uh, it has nothing to do with, with that nonsense. I'm working full-time uh, for a few months at the, uh, at the Christian discipleship. It's a, it's a drug rehab. And I was talking to the guys this morning, and we were talking about I like what David was saying. It's one thing to say that well, penal substitution is ridiculous or whatever. If you don't, if you can come at it in, in a sort of a, in a smarter way, more indirectly, you can probably really undermine like a lot of this stuff. And it's really, I, it just hit me this morning. I was talking to a group of them. I said, you know, in Matthew chapter, you know, in the beginning of the Christian Bible, in Matthew chapter one, in verse 21. So if you don't count the genealogy, it's about the third verse of Matthew's gospel. And the angel is telling, you know, she says, and you'll name, you know, you'll call the baby, you know, she's going to bear a son and you're going to call him Jesus for he will, you know, save his people from their sins. And, the, and all the guys were like, it, they all just kind of like their heads all kind of popped up and they went, well, wait a second. You know, you mean that Jesus came and, lived and died and rose so that he could save me from my sins 
yeah, that's literally what the to save the world from its sins, to save the cosmos from from sin. And it's like it's such a almost like an existential sort of thing that they start to immediately understand that Christianity has to do with their lived reality. People who are in sort of desperate circumstances don't maybe probably don't have as much time for the uh, conversation about well, should women you know lead in the church or whatever? And there's a time and place for that, you know, but. I think that people who are desperate for, for God, they see, they understand that if you just explain it to them, well, God loves you and wants to save you from your sins and help you become the person that you created, you know, that he created you to be. At least the guys that I work with at the, re, at the drug rehab, they seem, to, they seem to get that, and they love it. They can't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. They're so excited about it. The most zealous supporters that I know of, of like our president, for instance, are evangelical women. Hmm. That's my, my experience and what I'm experiencing. And I don't understand that. But what I do understand is that the gospel seems to speak to people who don't have very much power, don't really have very much privilege, don't really have much standing, don't really have much of anything because maybe they don't even have their freedom or their possessions or you know they don't, they don't really have hardly anything. But I really think that it's been almost for me like impenetrable in some of these churches that I've worked in where people do have, you know, power and privilege and, and prestige and money and all these different things. I just, maybe it's, it's probably my own failure, but I haven't been able to, to break through. I don't know. I don't, I don't, maybe, maybe, I, maybe the, the Holy spirit was able to work, you know, in spite of me, but it does seem like a really cool thing that whenever you're preaching to people who don't have all that stuff, and all those preconceived ideas, and I'm sure that you guys that are preaching have come up against this. It's like when you're a young man or whatever, and you're talking to a congregation who for 40 years has heard it one way, and it's like, and you're trying to give them something, you know, like I love what I think it was David said about N.T. Wright, about how he opened the door, but you had no idea how wide he was going to fling the door, but that same thing happened to me. And I'm still walking through that door, you know, and I had no idea, you know, that, and I remember trying to give that gift to people in my life I was willing to do the hard work and I, I saw David behind you, you know, Jesus in the victory of God and, and, and writes other big books. And I remember wading through those things, man, and really just being excited about what I was reading and blessed by it and kind of blown away. And all I really wanted to do was to kind of share that with the people in my life. They, they didn't want it or they didn't care about it or they didn't have ears to hear it or they were so kind of indoctrinated by the ideology that we started talking about at the beginning of the class. And for me, it becomes a bit impenetrable. So much so that I've left the Christian church. You know, I, I just, I, I left, you know, I said, I can't, I don't, this is futile. And I only have a short time to live, you know what I'm saying, in my life. I got to move, keep it moving. Because it's like, I don't have time to fight this battle. Like, I feel like I need to go out and help people. I don't have time for this. And I, but I commend you guys for, for fighting that battle. And I think that it's going to, it's a hard fought thing. I've, I try to do it in middle churches. I will, I'll tell you, I'll say this, if it weren't for women, that's the ironic thing. If it weren't for women in both of the churches that I pastored, the church just would have shut down. They were the, they were the ones who paid the bills. They were the ones who did everything, got everything ready. They, they, they cleaned the place. They organized the programs. They did it all. You know what I mean? And it's like, but yet they, they couldn't have their name on a piece of paper or, or whatever, you know, it was. But it's just a very sort of hypocritical thing. 
it really just turns me off, I guess. And I really just don't really want too much to do with anymore. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff in the Episcopal church too. I'm not, I'm not Episcopalian, but that's where I'm currently going. Yeah. It can be, it can be discouraging on the one hand, but I will say what's really encouraging on the other hand is whenever you, or at least, at least maybe you guys can speak to this in your own experience that whenever you talk to people who, who haven't been sort of brought up in, uh, under, you know, in the, into this sort of ideology, they seem to get it. They really do seem to go, yeah, that doesn't sound, that doesn't really, that doesn't make sense. Or they see, you know, even these guys that I'm working with who are violent. I was talking to a guy the other day, he was looking at 85 years, a couple years ago, 85 years he was looking at. And we were talking about like nonviolence, about how Jesus teaches nonviolence. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I mean, Jesus definitely seems to be teaching nonviolence. Now, whether or not he can get his head around it or whether I can get my head around it is another thing, but at least he's not, like, trying to deny, like, what the clear teaching of the New Testament is, all right? And it's like that that, that seems to happen, and it's a really refreshing thing, I think. It's a really cool thing, I think, to work with people where you can kind of um, teach them. They haven't been, I want to say, like, um, I don't want to use too strong of a word, but, like, almost, like, polluted by the ideology of a false Christianity that I think is almost cultish. You know, cults are sort of famously difficult to get people, to break people free from, you know what I mean? Because of the ideology is so strong in the, the group, you know, dynamic and stuff like that. And the, the pool of fundamentalism, I think, is so strong that it's really hard to step away from that group. It can be painful. You lose your friends. You lose your identity in some ways. You lose your security and your safety. And, and most people just aren't willing to do that. They're not willing to, to sort of break, break out of that. I guess, man, if you're getting a little bit jaded, I guess try to go work with some maybe some drug addicts or some criminals or some people in prison that might not have ever heard the gospel because it really is a refreshing thing where – you don't have to fight that battle. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight that battle. And I really, I commend you guys who are, who are doing it. I think someone said it was an uphill battle, and I think that that's true. And it might get you fired. You know, it'll probably, you'll probably lose a bunch of friends and family or, or whatever. Um, it's happened to people that I love and know, and it's happened to me. Jesus seems to be saying, hey, I came for the sick. I came to preach the gospel to the poor. That's who I think as Christians we need to probably go talk to. You know what I'm saying? That's the people that Jesus went and talked to. It's like people aren't willing to have like a civilized conversation that maybe we shouldn't oppress women or people of a different race. Then like maybe, I don't know, for me, it's like, well, okay, I guess maybe someone else is going to have to talk with you or something because I don't know how to do it because I don't know what religion that is. It's so confusing that... I just don't even understand it. It's kind of a scary thing in that regard because it's like there's because it's really like a thing where there's people that I love who I know are better than their theology and who who but on the other hand it's like but they're also giving people power who are evil and they're doing it for theological reasons and for Christian reasons and I don't understand that Christianity that, that can oppress people and hurt people and call people names and be okay with doing uh, evil. Like, I just don't understand it. I'm not willing to say that they're not Christians or whatever. But for me, I just don't get it. I'm just curious. It's an interesting group we've got here because I think Trenton and David are on the right side of my screen attempting to work in institutional churches, and a commendable thing it is. Tim and I are kind of in the middle. Tim, I think, <laughs> has abandoned the project entirely. Matt and uh, Levi are over there still still at work. I don't have any any big picture answer. In other words, I think David the the work that you've done, I just find it so highly interesting that it takes a a person of 
a unique diplomacy and character and patience and endurance that it must be a, a special gift. Think of, of students that I, that I have. Uh, I know that many have tried to teach the Bible truly in churches, and it just doesn't work very often. It's too much. It's too much for people. On the other hand, I think Matt can testify that uh, our mutual friend there working in a very traditional church, and is that successful? People are just more racist than ever and more national. You know, the, the current sort of Christian climate and political climate can help you to sort of dig in your heels, you know, more. And so there might be some of that happening. But, you know, but again, I go to an Episcopal church where, you know, sort of anything goes with sexuality, it's abortion. One question, it sounds like a kind of throwaway question, like, oh, this is, he's asking for some sort of religious answer. That's not what I'm doing. That's describe the foundational nature of Christ. This whole death drive has gotten me, and, and basically the nature of Christ was to reorient that death drive, um, that sin and death is displaced or reoriented, reoriented uh, in, in Jesus of uh, doing things. Uh, good comes through him and can only be known through him. The opposite of the nature of Christ is death, and the, the very nature of Christ is, is life, and, and it begins to reorient everything from death to life. Yeah, David, you've got it. There's always a pattern in human foundationalism. Foundationalism refers to Rene Descartes and modernity, but I would presume that actually uh, you could just take the same pattern and f find it in, throughout human thought and history. But the pattern is there in Descartes in that what you get, the way you get a foundation, is that you get two opposed pairs. I think, therefore I am. In Aristotle, he does the same thing with the notion of peace. What is peace? Well, he's picturing an originary chaos in which there's two forces at work, and peace is in some way holding at bay this chaos. What foundationalism will mean in human terms, and understand we're talking about truth here, that I'm presuming that you can do this in every field. I mean literally every field. I'm including mathematics, sociology, that each of them presumes that their system of thought provides its own foundation. What is taking place in all of these areas, including science, you know, this is the scientific revolution with uh, Thomas Kuhn. This is Kurt Gödel the, in the mathematics. It's, uh, you can just go right on through. What people are discovering, this is sociology, John Milbank, it's psychology. What, what is being discovered again and again is that the presumption that areas of understanding or study are self-grounding or self-founding, that that's a false understanding. This is the significance of postmodernity. There is no self-grounding knowledge. And so the truth that we have, I'm afraid, that we've kind of inherited is a truth that floats free. In other words, in this system that you're going to arrive at truth through a foundation that we build upon, and then absolute truth, you know, this is the sense of the enduring, you know, uh, transcendent truths. What's imagined is that we have access as human beings through our own 
reason, science, mathematics, ethics. It's happened in every field. In Kant, you know, this is Kantian picture of the categorical imperative. The notion is that that truth floats free of the world. All of that is falling apart. The foundations are falling apart. I think that's a good thing. In other words, people are realizing, oh, the very notion of truth is being undone. And so I, I see post-modernity, it is the failure of a, the major ideology with which we've all been brainwashed. And so when we talk about Christ as foundation, here is God incarnate. Take an example like peace, that we're no longer dealing with the notion that peace is the absence of war or the absence of conflict, but peace is the originary peace of God himself revealed to us in Christ, that we have access to peace in the resource of the person of Christ. And so what it means that Christ is foundation is we have access, resources, and I, I, you know, ultimately I think this is what we're talking about psychoanalytically, psychologically, that the way that we would define ourselves in this antagonistic, agonistic relationship is just characteristic of human foundationalism that that too is undone, that in Christ then there is an originary notion of our humanity, of the image of God, of, you know, Trinity, of participation in the Trinity. But, I, but yeah, David, you've got it, and that is that in, a, in an ethical sense, this comes out, everybody knows the Kantian categorical imperative. Run it down first, Matt. A categorical imperative is that you know that you should do that which you think that everyone should do, right? Something like that. And so it is the grounding of ethics and reason. Of course, some people would just want to watch the world burn. And so we went through Eichmann, we went through the Marquis de Sade, both quote the Kantian categorical imperative out of which we get a radical evil. That that it is that Hegel's. Uh, whole picture, you know, that it's the things that won't fit together. The ultimate is the noumena, the thing in itself and the phenomena. I'm using Kant as just an illustration of this. And that is that Hegel says, oh, the problem is the solution. That the dialectic, the agonistic struggle, what Paul is saying about human personality, I think it just applies across the board. It applies philosophically. It applies in ethics. It applies in every area that the way that it will always be run down is through some sort of opposed pairs, through an agonistic struggle. That is, you need the noumena and you need the phenomena. And what Hegel says, that's not the problem, that's the solution. This is Slavoj Zizek. What is a human being? A human being is that which rises, arises then over the struggle between the superego and the ego. That you are your suffering. You are that painful suffering. This is really the way that Freud began to talk. Once you get the pattern of the dialectic, of identity through difference, of the opposed pairs, of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, this is St. Augustine actually saw this in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That he, he says, well, it's just a system of circulating signs. It's, but what we would do with that system is we would imagine that truth is in the system, and therefore you can posit a kind of ahistorical truth, an absolute truth, I th really think this is where, you, the, where Christianity, evangelicalism, has gone bad. The very understanding of truth is that some way Christ is coordinated 
with a kind of modernist understanding of what is true. What Christ is doing is displacing, deconstructing, undoing a, a notion of truth and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I think we can really run, down, run that down and show the difference that makes. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. But um, David, I just wanted to say that I really respect what you're doing, man. And I see, um, I kind of know what you're, what you're up against here. And just seeing your witness, man, and uh, just some of the stuff you say, you know, on social media and some of the stuff that you're doing in that church. I just want to tell you that I really respect what you're doing and, and respect you and, and think that it's uh, it's really great work. And I, I'm pr it gives me hope, you know what I'm saying, that we have guys like you that are still out there in the, in the Christian in the Christian church doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. I just feel like I'm just a part of Paul's revolution. <laughs> we got to we got to keep this going. It's another format. Thank you for that, Tim. I appreciate it. But no, it's been wonderful. It's way better than I expected. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. They got American friends. <laughs> <laughs>